Welcome to Getting Credit, a podcast focusing on financial markets, corporate credit, and timely insights from Aristotle Funds. Here's your guest host, Matt Murphy, Senior Client Portfolio Manager. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Our guest is Aubrey Kaiser, a credit analyst for Aristotle Pacific Capital, sub-advisor for the Aristotle Funds Fixed Income Funds. Aubrey focuses on analyzing utilities and packaging across the corporate credit structure. Aubrey, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Aubrey, today we're going to focus on electric power generation, and I'll start off by asking, how are we generating our electric power today? Sure. So on a national basis, we generate about 60% of our energy from traditional fossil fuels. Think of this as like coal, petroleum, natural gas, very traditional um, energy sources, and 40% is from green energy sources. So green, you can think of that as nuclear, wind, solar, hydro, or even geothermal. Is the shift to green energy moving slowly or rapidly? The shift is definitely accelerating. So here's some stats to consider. In 1970, we generated about 82% of our energy from traditional fossil fuels. Now, if you flash forward to the year 2000, fossil fuels generation dropped 71%. Now, if you look at the latest data, which is up until 2022, that generation number has dropped to 60%. So you can see over 30 years, we dropped 10%, but over 20 years, we dropped another 10%. So you can see that the shift is definitely accelerating. So give me the why or why not. Will we ever be completely green in creating electric power? You know, that's a good question. Um, is there a future where we can completely green? I think that's eventually possible, but there are a lot of strides that need to be taken to make sure that green energy is reliable. You know, the great thing about personal fossil fuels is that they're mostly cheap on the domestic side and they are reliable. Green energy, you got to think of that as, you know, the major ones, solar and wind, right? You need the sun to be out for solar to work and you need there to be a steady breeze for, you know, wind to push the turbines to generate electricity, right? So for when there are cloudy days or when, you know, there's not as much wind, those energy sources are not as reliable. So we actually need to build up some more battery storage to store excess energy. So when those days happen, you know, we have adequate um, energy sources in a world where there's completely 100% green energy. So is there a future that exists? I think there is, but it's a long ways from uh, today, at least. So, you're, you know, an example to consider is most utilities are targeting a net zero target by 2050 uh, for uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And the keyword here is net. So utilities will still use, you know, some form of carbon-based fuels, but, you know, we'll try to do some carbon capture and, you know, maybe plant some trees um, to make sure that on a net-net basis, it's um, not as, uh, they're completely zero. So even then by 2050, I expect there's still to be some carbon usage. You talked a little bit about batteries in that last section there. Uh, let's talk about batteries and electric vehicles. Can the current power markets keep up with the demand right now? As it currently stands, for the most part, yes. So if you were to exclude any natural disasters that happened, domestically, the grid has held up well. But there are some growing concerns. Um, and there's been a declining amount of generation that has been available. Um, here's an example. Um, there is a regional transmission organization called PJM. Think of this basically as an exchange between the ultimate uh, users of electricity and the suppliers of electricity. They conduct capacity auctions. This is basically how the exchange makes sure that there's adequate amount of power supply to meet 
the expected generation needs, and they usually have a little bit of a reserve um, just in case for buffer when things might be a little bit more than expected. So results came out a couple of weeks ago, and they got two gigawatts less of generation um, this time around. This is the third straight time um, there's been declining amount of generation that's available. So while right now it's okay, it's definitely a going concern moving forward. So in a future where there is not enough generation, you know, they will try to have to source energy somewhere, whether that's a different region, maybe Texas, or even, you know, maybe energy from overseas. That's definitely a possibility too. So it's a concern. They have to meet it somehow. So um, it's something that the uh, ultimate utility uh, utilities are concerned about and the regulators that are governing the electric uh, power grid is concerned about. For us out here in California with the rolling brownouts during the summer, it seems like we're a long way off from having any energy for an avalanche of more EVs on the road. Is that correct? You know, that's a fair conclusion. One interesting stat to point out um, is, you know, last summer, California saw a record 10-day heat wave, which saw demand reach a peak of 52,000 megawatts. And that's 4% higher than the previous record set in 2006. This time, that time around, um, you know, California fortunately had enough reserve supplies, but if that had been depleted, the uh, independent system operators of this basically, once what California's version of an RTO, they would have ordered utilities to begin rolling power outages to make sure there was not a national or like a like a rolling kind of blackout sort of situation. So yes, you're right. Um, if you were to completely go 100% EVs, California definitely could not handle that. But there have been some steps to handle the increased load. One thing that's even being discussed um, is utilities are exploring having EVs that are like plugged in during the middle of the day discharged back to the grid and utilities would compensate the owners of the EVs a nominal amount. And this sort of kind of creates a virtual power plant is what they've said. And that basically can help the grid uh, when there's time of extreme stress. So it is something that they're considering and they're definitely trying to make things more efficient um, on the EV side. And uh, so, yes, we are we're, we're taking some steps to uh, get there, um, but we're still, you know, to your point, a long way away from being 100% EVs here. Yeah. So infrastructure-wise, will we need to build more in terms of charging stations, grids, substations, that sort of thing? Yeah. No. Absolutely. So you know, it's hard to get specific data on EVs, but if you were to look at new sales versus the actual amount of vehicles in the road, I will ballpark it as currently about sub two percent EV penetration domestically. So doubling it actually wouldn't be too meaningful in terms of the actual generation required um, in the grand scheme of things. But on the infrastructure side, to your point, um, there's a significant amount of work that needs to be done. You know, the great thing about us here in California is the infrastructure is great. There's so many uh, power uh, charging stations, um, you know, within like often like less than a mile from each other. But if you look at across the country, you know, um, there's a definite, definite lack of uh, power um, and lack of EV charging stations that are available. Um, you know, JD Power recently did a survey um, where they showed that one in five charging attempts fail, with 72% of failures due to some malfunctioning of that EV um, charging unit. This needs to be addressed. Um, so yes, we will need a fair amount of EV um, or a fair amount of EV chargers um, to make sure that the whole nation is ready for ultimate EV uh, 100% uh, adoption. So kind of taking those first two sets of questions <laughs> that we just talked about, 
and putting it together, what's more challenging is producing the energy or building the infrastructure uh, to get the electricity to the vehicles. You know, this may seem like a cop-out to the question, but I think they're equally as challenging. You know, if you look at from the energy producing side, right, as I touched on earlier, uh, we will need to build out much more and more storage and we need to make solar and wind these traditional or these new green energy sources make them more efficient in how they uh, capture energy and again build a battery to store that energy during times where there's extreme amount of stress so there is a lot of work that needs to be done on the energy generation side but equally as important on the infrastructure side as i've touched earlier is it's very weak across the country there is work being done um, to increase the amount of charges available but it's definitely slow pickings um, so it's going to be a significant overhaul needed both on the you know energy generation slash innovation side as well as making sure that the proper infrastructure is available to make sure that um, you know we can drive an EV across the country. On a national basis, let's talk about the grid itself and hotter summers, colder winters. How much pressure are we seeing on the grid right now? Yeah, so I've touched on this a bit earlier, but we have seen more um, you know, record heat waves and unusual cold winters. Um, so the most recent example is winter storm Uri, um, which ravaged many states, but particularly Texas, which was not well equipped to handle that. Over 5.2 million homes and businesses were out of power, and it was the largest blackout in Texas since 2003, right? And again, I touched on California earlier with their record-breaking heat wave. But utilities are recognizing this and trying to harden the grid. They're actually trying to direct their investment to make sure that the grid is sustainable through these extreme um, weather events. One thing that they're you know, is doing is basically making sure the actual transmission lines are coded to withstand this extreme weather through a process called weatherization. You have the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, back in February approved two extreme cold weather reliability standards across the country. You know, utilities are even using smart devices to alert operators of issues. And when there are issues, they can sectionalize portions of the transmission system so that that sort of that section might be blocked up, but the overall grid is still safe. And even in some cases, we're seeing delays in retirement of actual generation assets to make sure that you know we can uh, you know provide um, the appropriate amount of power during those extreme weather events. So it is something that's being worked on, and we've we saw a little bit of uh, benefit last winter. Granted, we didn't see something as extreme as Winter Storm Uri, but there was Winter Storm Elliott, and Texas, for the most part, was able to handle that okay, and across most of the regions handled it relatively fine. So there's some work being done. I would say we're probably in the second or third inning in the grand scheme of things, um, but it is something that is the regulators are aware of and they're trying to address. So in terms of current plans for increasing the grid's capacity, is that the companies themselves or is that a Washington issue, a Build Back Better type issue? Sure. So it's it's a bit of both, I would say. So on the Washington side, there, there was a White House initiative called the EV Charging Action Plan that essentially sketches how federal agencies will coordinate with private companies to coordinate the development of a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle chargers. You also have the Inflation Reduction Act, which increases more capacity on at least the you know green energy side of things, so solar and wind through uh, the extension of what they're called production tax credits um, to make those energy sources more economically viable. But on the utility side, 
yes, that is that they are definitely considering that as well. They're essentially building out more of green energy themselves to make sure that there's adequate capacity. So it goes you know, hand in hand, like, you know, the utilities are focused on it as well as, you know, the legislators themselves to make sure that the grid is secure. Let's move to actual, some, some of that green energy generation. Several decades ago, nuclear power had the reputation of being dangerous, dangerous enough to outweigh the benefits. How's that changed? Yeah, so nuclear is definitely not as risky as it was before. Um, there have been a lot of safeguards put in to limit the risk now. There won't be another Chernobyl or Fukushima to happen in today's world. There are stress tests uh, for various scenarios, including earthquake, flooding, or even a plane crash, human error, that sort of thing. So today's technologies and safety protocols have advanced considerably to make nuclear safer. And if you look at Europe, for example, about 25% of all energy is from nuclear versus here domestically it's about 18%. So given the amount of risk mitigation has gone into nuclear generation, you know, sentiment, at least on the you know, corporation and in the you know, federal um, level um, has changed, and it is definitely a reliable energy resource. Do you see it eventually being a major energy source for us? So short answer is no. You know, nuclear is great, and here's one stat to consider. When we look at generation and how effective it is, we look at something called the capacity factor. This is basically defined as actual energy output over over time versus over like the theoretical maximum energy output, right? So, you know, if you look at traditional uh, fossil fuels, um, they have on average, um, it depends on which fossil fuel you're talking about, but the best one um, has a capacity factor of 57%, right? Roughly. Nuclear has a capacity factor of 93%, right? So it's definitely a highly reliable um, and it's, it's a great energy resource. But on the negative side, there are significant costs to start up nuclear plant from scratch. So there's a company out there that's trying to build out two nuclear plants um, in Georgia, and they're the only two nuclear plants being developed in the country. And that is seven years behind schedule and almost $20 billion over budget. The original contractor is now gone bankrupt, um, but the utility is very committed to making sure that you know those nuclear plants go up, just considering they've put in all this time and resource into it. So other utilities have seen this, and they are very uh, reticent on trying to build out just because you could, you know, from, from a corporate perspective, you're putting in tons of money into this bleeding sort of um, asset that takes a lot of capital to put up. You could even suffer um, rating agency downgrades. Um, so that's something to consider as well. So that's why it's probably not going to happen here. There's been some work done for more project-based um, nuclear. So something called small modular reactors or SMRs. So as the name suggests, they're smaller in scale and more easily deployable, but they're likely going to be used in isolated situations. So think of it like a military base or like a hospital system where they can provide energy in for a, for a large area, but you know, but still relatively localized. But the other thing is, you know, given the overall goal on the federal side to curb greenhouse uh, gas emissions, there's been movement to at least preserve the existing nuclear fleet. Recently, Congress has passed a civil nuclear credit program, which extends retirement for existing nuclear assets, um, which will definitely help in the near to medium term. There's, there's also some work being developed on the nuclear fusion side, which is very promising, but it's still in its early stages. So I say probably not uh, domestically. Um, just because the, the amount of costs associated with it. And while sentiments change on the federal and corporation side, 
lot of uh, consumers, they just don't want to be next to a nuclear plant, right? From that perspective, it's difficult as well. So unfortunately, great, great resource, but um, unlikely to be a major component of overall generation uh, moving forward. So let's put all that together that we've talked about today. And in 25 years, percentage-wise, where do you think we'll get our power from? Yeah, so going back early to the podcast, I highlighted that we're accelerating the transition to green energy. So maybe we can get to 50-50 or even 55-45 with 55 being green energy. You know, everyone in the power space and the utility space um, continue to direct their investment towards more green energy resources and trying to move away from coal, at least. Um, so the transition will certainly happen, um, but I think we're we're still 25 years. We're still far, far away before it being like a meaningful, like greater than called 60, 70 percent um, green energy contribution. Um, I think that might happen may, maybe in 50 years from now. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're accelerating, but, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Let me ask you one last question. How are companies some of the ones you're following, even tapping the credit markets to achieve some of these goals and in, in sure. that power shift. Yeah, absolutely. So you see companies, mainly utilities, um, are essentially are raising debt to fund their capital investments. Utilities have massive, massive CapEx programs, some in the range of, you know, over, over five-year span, call it upwards of 50 or even $100 billion. But this is all being essentially directed towards making sure that their proportion of the grid is reliable and they're directing it towards green energy investment. Some are more delivered than others through the issuance of green slash sustainability linked bonds. But utilities in general are looking to invest in green resources and hardening grid from natural disasters to make sure that there's reliability and, and eventually uh, achieving their emission reduction targets. So companies are raising debts um, and directing that debt towards their capital investment programs, um, which is how they hopefully will achieve their net zero targets by 2050. Well, thanks, Aubrey. We really appreciate your insights today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. That wraps up our episode on power. Thanks for joining us. And we're looking forward to bringing you another edition of Analyze This next month. The views in this commentary are as of the date recorded and are presented for informational purposes only. These views should not be construed as investment advice, an endorsement of any security, mutual fund, sector, or index, or to predict performance of any investment. The opinions expressed herein are subject to change without notice, as market and other conditions warranted. Any performance data quoted represents past performance, which does not guarantee future results. Any forward-looking statements are not guaranteed. All material is compiled from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed.